Welcome to the WA Property Q&A, the podcast where I explore the ins and outs of buying property in Western Australia. I'm your host, Peter Fletcher, and each week I interview local property experts to help you to develop a deep understanding of the nuances of buying property in WA. From market trends to legal considerations, no topic is off limits. But before we dive in, a friendly reminder, while we provide valuable information, it's important to note that nothing discussed in this podcast should be construed as personal investment advice. Always remember to seek the appropriate professional advice for your specific circumstances. Now, let's get started and unlock the secrets to successful property buying in WA. Welcome to a special episode of the WA Property Q&A podcast. And I say special, I mean it is seriously special. With me today is Ches Rafferty. Ches is the owner of uh, Scantech. Uh, Ches is an expert in verification of identity and verification of identity technology. Have I got that right, Ches? Sure have, Peter. Now, this is serious stuff today, isn't it? It is, yeah. Really serious. And the reason it's serious is just last Friday, so three, two, 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 two or so working days ago, yep. a property fraud almost eventuated in WA. It was almost an actual property theft, and it was headed off by a really smart conveyancer. Now, I'm going to start out with reading her story. Now, this is, this is a story that she's shared with the industry, so it's not something that uh, is secret. And so here it is, straight from the horse's mouth. Wow, what a Friday. Long post, get yourself a cuppa. We all have had it, a feeling, a sense, an intuition to seek, to search, to come up with answers. I was feeling my gut instinct yesterday. Backstory, received the deal in in December, vacant land in York, acting for the seller, seller in South Africa, nothing unusual there. Hefty time difference. Uh, So most correspondence was done via email emails were well written. Real estate agent had already sent the seller to the consulate to do their verification of identity at the time of their listing. However, I told the seller he had to go back to have the client authorization witnessed and their ID recertified for us. He was okay with that, of course. The first little thing that he wanted differently was that he wanted the funds to be put into an account in Vietnam. On the outset, it's not a generic request, but yes, this is something we can do if we have the authority to do it. Once we got the documents back, we looked at them. The consulate stamps were there, all looked okay. The day prior to settlement, we called the seller as we like to verify the bank account's details verbally. This is where it gets really exciting, Jess. Indeed. My PA, Amanda, and Amanda should uh, receive an award here, I'd say, because you know this is really good work on her behalf, had a really strange call with the seller. And afterwards, she came to me and said she didn't have a good feeling. And when the call first started with him, the voice sounded computer generated. Now that's really odd. It is very, very odd. Very interesting. Yes. I was finalizing the file in the morning for an 11 a.m. settlement and it just felt off. So I decided to order a copy of the transfer of land document from when it was bought in 2015, back when buyers still signed transfers. Signatures were vastly different. It made me feel uncertain. However, I also reasoned with myself, if someone ordered a copy of a transfer from a property I bought 10 years ago, my signature probably would be different too. So I signed off in PEXA, but then I felt uneasy. So I unsigned. Now folks, just as a, as a, a, a little aside, 
when a conveyancer signs off in PEXA, that's the final step. There's like if, and I should say that the, the conveyancer we're talking about is Leanne Phoebe from Coburn Conveyancing. And, you know, I mention her name because I think she's done an amazing job here. So when she signs off in PEXA, basically there is nothing between uh, that point and the seller uh, getting the money and the buyer getting the property. But we go on. But then I felt uneasy, so I unsigned. I then Googled time. Uh, what is the time in South Africa right now? It was like 2.15 a.m. And then I Googled what time does the consulate open? It opened at 8 a.m. So then I decided that I would uh, be able to call the consulate at 2 p.m. our time. So I moved the settlement in PEXA to 3 p.m. So she's unsigned it. She's moved the settlement to PEXA to 3 p.m. Just one hour after the opening of the consulate. Very you know, smart. Oh, incredibly smart. Leanne Phoebe deserves an award here of some kind. So a long day waiting and looking at the clock, but I had other stuff to keep doing. So luckily the anxiety of waiting didn't completely wreck me. I called at 1.58 p.m., not open, took a deep breath, answered another call, and then made the call again at 2.02. Imagine if she had forgotten to make the phone oh, call. Indeed, yeah. ah. But <laughs> she got through to a department who do passports and certifications. I said who I was and why I was calling to verify that Mr. Philip Smith will call him, uh, but that's not uh, the real name attended their office and to confirm that the mentioned staff member, John Morris, had witnessed the signature. The lady from the consulate took a breath, had a little chuckle, and said, we don't have a John Morris at this consulate. My heart started pounding. I reckon her heart would have been going... A million miles an hour. I don't know, a million miles an hour. <laughs> My God, mine would, would have been. I said, are you sure? She said, definitely. She said, it is a known scam, not always the name John Morris, other names, they have a dummy rubber stamp that looks pretty legit, etc. That's the scammers have a dummy rubber stamp. She asked me to send to her the certified documents and she would issue us an official statement. She said she would flag it with the government's fraud team. And uh, the rest of the story is, is the, the reply from the consulate just to let them know why it was a fraud and you know, how lucky they were to have not acted on it. And so that's where we start, Ches Rafferty. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when people ask, you know, what does the conveyancing industry do? Like that's in a, in a heartbeat, right? That's making sure properties are correctly transferred or not transferred if they're not done correctly. Um, and that's what people are paying for, that expertise, that intuition, that years of experience to know when to make the, the right call and when to just to go that one step further and find out what's needed. I often say to people who buck about doing their VOI, you know, what do I need to do this for? You know, I sold properties before and I didn't need to do this. And I say to them, uh, conveyances are the like last line of defense yep. for the titles office. Our Part of our job is to defend the titles office. 100%. Um, so, it's uh, that, that old saying, isn't it? Um, you know, what did you charge me X dollars for? It's, you know, for the, for an hour of work, whatever it's like, I'm, you're not charging me the X dollars for an hour of work. You're charging me for 30 years of experience, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, Leanne, honestly, she's, she's done an amazing job. But what is overlooked here uh, is that the real estate agent did let it through. Yes. Now, Clause 29 of the Real Estate Agents Code of Conduct says that as soon as practical after receiving instructions and before a contract for that sale is executed, make all reasonable efforts to verify the identity of each person who claims to be or act for 
a person who is uh, to sell all or any of the real estate. So let's unpack what reasonable steps are. Yeah, and you get this term reasonable steps through all kinds of different regulations and legislations. And it personally drives me nuts because for a start, I think reasonable steps completely depends on the actual event occurring. So let's take that same scenario. If it was a owner-occupied house with a mortgage or you know multiple mortgages on it, mm-hmm. there's so many different parties that have to be involved. So there's a lot more levels to get through to, to pass that. But when, which in this case, I believe is correct, it was an unencumbered vacant block of land. Well, there's certainly a lot less steps to prevent it being transferred. So to me, the number of reasonable steps that have to be done should be much higher and much stronger because the risk is much higher. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's that's so true. Yeah, so, so the reasonable steps for a real estate agent is situational, situationally Absolutely. dependent. Yep. So if, if they're listing their neighbor's property – They've, you know, they've lived next door to their neighbor for, you know, 15 or 20 years. And dinner there and their kids have grown up together. You're probably fairly safe that person is who they say they are. Yeah. And they own that property. Yeah. So, you know, like anything owner occupied from a real, and we're talking real estate agent's perspective and don't forget I'm, I am a real estate agent. So we're talking about my profession. Uh, So owner occupiers are probably at a, a lower threshold of that reasonable side of things. Definitely. And when banks and stuff have got involved, they're pretty good at holding on to money. So they're going to make those people jump through a bunch of hoops to even be able to allow the mortgage to be discharged. So mm. there's another set of validity that needs to be approved before you could transfer a property. Mm. In this case, again, we don't know the other side of the story, of course, from the real estate agent's perspective. But I think to your point about conveyance as the last line of defense, well, real estate agents should be the first line of defense, right? 100%. Yeah. They've got a real... Uh, well, They've got a, a requirement specifically to do that. And in fraud and, and other things like um, you know, aircraft safety is another one. There's this theory of the Swiss cheese theory of defense, which is any system has holes in it. Mm-hmm. And if you get enough pieces of Swiss cheese together, mm-hmm. you can't see through it because there's, there's not enough holes that will line up. You block them out. Okay. The risk is when you get to this idea of last line offense of, or, or single piece of Swiss cheese, mm. if that comes through at the wrong angle, that goes straight through a hole and no one notices it. As we mentioned in this case, Leanne's done a fantastic job of listening to intuition. Her staff member, again, obviously highly you know, intelligent and trained as well to go things aren't feeling right and to come straight to, to explain that that's what's happening. So I guess they did have two lines of defense there. They've got different parts of yes, their team. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, but also, if you don't have those other lines of defense, and if you think about that scenario with um, someone you know, that's another line of defense. The fact that there's mortgagees that have to discharge that's another line of defense. In this situation, if if you you might only have basically the real estate agent and the uh, the conveyances, that's a, that's a very high risk of something getting through those holes in the cheese, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when uh, like in this case, the the real estate agents have been presented with somebody that has made contact with them. Yep. Uh, by the sound of it, it probably would have been via email. Yes. And they've said, we own this block of land. Well, you know, we want to sell it. The real estate agent has sent them off to, apparently, we don't know for, for sure. But we can assume that the second lot of the, the consulate was fake, that they would have gone sure because, and as the consulate themselves mentioned, right, this is regularly happening. So presumably, as soon as the person goes, great, I'll, I'll, uh, get that, you know, you have to go to consulate, they'll be like, yeah, no problems because I've already done these fake documents, you know, however many times before. 
some of the questions I'd be interested in knowing the real estate agent was, for example, was there any negotiation around the commission? Was the price really good? So if someone calls you up, you know, and, and that can happen in the real world. I'm in financial distress. Uh, I need to move this block of land on. I'm willing to do a good deal. But if I was a real estate agent and no one's arguing about my commission, it's supposed to go for X dollars and they want to sell it for 70 cents on the dollar or 80 cents on the dollar because they know that will sell quickly. And obviously, if you're a fraudster, you don't want to have um, for sale signs out the front or you don't want things online saying for sale in case someone comes across it and says, oh, Peter, I didn't realize you were selling your block up. Yeah, sure. All them where you're like, I'm not selling yeah, the my faster block. faster it happens. The faster mm. it happens. So I would be curious to understand whether or not the reasonable steps from their perspective, if those red warning flags came up. My gut feel, and again, we don't know the, the story here, my gut feel would be if you were to look at it, there would have been red flag after red flag that wasn't identified. And you know, maybe it was the other way. Maybe it was like, mate, I'll give you double your commission. I'll, uh, I need to sell it for half the price. And so I'm thinking, well, this is too good to be true. I get the same commission. I'd get it full price. It's an easy sale because I know I'm overblocking at half the rate that it normally is worth. Uh, those things should make you straight away that, you know, like Leanne did, that intuition should have been like something is very, very not right here. Mm, mm. Um, and again, off, over, overseas buyer, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the fact that they tried to, to put the, the funds into a, a bank account in Vietnam, yes. uh, that's a bit of a, a bit of a red flag. Yeah, no, absolutely. No question. Yeah. So the real estate agent, you know, like there, there, there's some like alarm bells that should have been going off. You would think, and maybe they've done the right thing. We're not, we don't we're not want to cast dispersions no. on, on one real estate agent because perhaps they did everything that they thought was right. Absolutely. And we don't know, we don't know what did or didn't occur, but we do know how fraudsters tend to to operate and that is moving things quickly. And again, it to be fair to anyone who's involved in fraudulent transactions, it's it's an it's an asymmetric game. It's an unfair game because they can be trying to defraud 20 um pieces of land, right? They only have to get one to succeed and they've succeeded, you know. Yes. So yes. Because you happen to be the one person that perhaps missed it or one person did the right steps and they still got past you. It's not to again say that anyone's done something wrong, but just that constant awareness that you have to keep, you know, be asking again and again and again like Leanne did, that next step of going looking for what other um things she could find, like signatures, you know, that's that was a brilliant, you mm. know, really clever, quick bit of thinking. I think pretty much saying that's not actually available anymore. Is that right? Because we don't have physical signatures on. Yeah. Well, as of when Pexa came through, all that, all that went away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's five years or whatever. It's gone away. So sometimes the old stuff actually has some level of value, but Mm. that also is where I think where technology can come in and potentially look at other ways of, of doing that as well. Mm. 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 So, so the real estate agent sends them off to the, the consulate or the, the, the embassy or the consulate or something. I, I'm really curious about this because I, I just wonder, like they, they obviously wanted some sort of verification of identity certificate from, from the consular official. Yeah. I, I personally have a giant bugbear with this whole concept. Feed it. Cheers, <laughs> go on. Let it rip. <laughs> well, because so do I. It, it's this idea and you see it time and time again. It's this idea that, I get something that makes me feel better rather than I get something that makes this more secure, more legitimate. So um, you see the same thing with the sort of notary publics and stuff like that. Well, you need to get someone in a foreign country to sign to say that that they've cited an ID. Hey, what do they know about IDs? Consulate a bit different. So they do know about ID documents and, and that story goes on to them to articulate 
some of their experience with why the passport provided couldn't be correct. And again, only experts would know that. But the problem is there's no sort of actual checks and balances. There's no database of consulate verifications. There's no source that you can go to to say, here it is, this person, here's a photo of them, did it this time, this is the name provided, it's all legitimate. So there's this kind of mm. furfew that, oh, I've got a piece of paper with a stamp on it. Well, guess what? As we can see in this story, the, the fraudsters have the stamp too, right? They make a fake stamp and away you go. Yeah, and, and, and Leanne, and I know that other other settlement agents do it. You know, we, we have these debates on, on the Facebook group all the time. Yep. They double check by calling the, the consulate. Yes, and that's the key part that, that Leanne did. But in many cases, they don't, right? In many cases. Oh, 100%. You, you get a, a, a document that comes through the mail and, you know, an official looking letterhead and you think, yep. okay, well, that's it. That's done. You file it away and it's, you know, it's a, it's a done deal. It's yep. like... And to be clear, I'm not criticizing in any way going to the consulate and doing it. The problem is there's no back-to-source verification on that. It, it's not that it's not a valid thing to do and it's not worthwhile to do. It's just that there's no, there's no truth, database of truth that can actually say this occurred in this, this day, yes. this, this idea. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it's comical. If you actually turn up to Australia from a foreign country with a whole bunch of notary stamped um, things – that's just as legitimate to open a bank account as someone actually providing Australian documents that you can verify are actually real Australian documents. Mm. You're like, well, hang on a sec. So if I want to set up a fake document in Australia, all I have to do is fake some British documents and say I'm from the UK and someone will go, well, it's got a stamp on it. Okay, well, here you go. It's a very Australian British accent you have there, sir. You're like, uh, yes, uh, my parents are Australian. I never lost my Australian accent even though I was born in the UK. So it's it's just more, it feels like it's an antiquated yeah, idea that we had from a hundred years ago, and that we haven't, as a society, this is not even about what people are doing in businesses. Doing. We haven't, as a society, actually said, surely we have the technology today to be able to make this a global verified system, and it wouldn't actually be too hard to do. So I, I see on um, some of the groups on on the real estate groups, um, real estate agents saying, "Well, uh, we ask for a um, um, an." online meeting, a Zoom or a Teams meeting, yep. uh, where they show us their their driver's license passport. Your thoughts on that? I think it's better than doing nothing. I think it's an extra step. But again, if you have any kind of fake or whether that's a high quality fake or even a manufactured fake with a lo- relatively low resolution Zoom call, how are you going to be able to tell that that's a real ID? It's, it's, it is better than nothing. I, I think probably the most important thing is actually talking to someone face-to-face and seeing if that triggers anything from more of an intuition experience, but it, you're not really doing much to verify it. If I got your ID or a fake ID and put my face on it and said, hey, I'm Peter, and you look, I make up some numbers and they go, it looks about the right number of ID, ID numbers you'd have an Australian driver's license or a passport. I mean, how would, you, how would mm. anyone know mm-hmm. um, without those verification um, feedback loops? So. So the ARNIC, um, what do you, what do they call them? The ARNIC, um, no, that's the ARNIC uh, MPR version six guidance notes about verification of identity, and I'll put this in the show notes to for for everyone to read. What they they talk a lot about reasonable steps. Yes, um, and <laughs> again, um, these reasonable steps yeah, terms yeah, come up. Yeah, and what they. They pretty much specifically say that a Zoom slash Teams call is not reasonable steps, should not be relied upon. Yes. It's, it's just like you could do it as part of 
confirming other more robust, reasonable steps. Yes. But don't, do not rely on that alone. Uh, and that's a good point. But again, you know, there's other parts of those model participation rules that I don't think have come up um, to really take advantage of some of the technology that is available. Yes. Um, now, you know, very clear of what we do. We're, we're very, very, very strong inside Australia. Some of the stuff that I'm talking about being able to do is much harder to do outside of Australia. It may not even be possible, is not possible in many other countries. So, for example, in Australia, we've got the right technology providers, such as ourselves, have access to back-to-source data to actually say that is legitimate details from, say, a WA driver's license or a Queensland birth certificate. Mm, mm. You can imagine in other countries, particularly countries that may not be as economically developed as, yep. as Australia, they don't have access that, to that. But even, for example, in the UK, which is obviously very advanced society, you can't actually do a verification back to source and an ID to buy or sell a property. But weirdly, you can to rent a property. So you've got these bizarre regulations sometimes where you think there is a risk, obviously, in renting a property to someone. They could trash a place. That's pretty bad. Not as bad as someone selling your property, right? Like, mm. okay, you come in, hopefully you've got landlord insurance or whatever, and there's your... $20,000 in damage after repair. It's a, it's a pretty annoying, you know, month or two. But it's a lot less annoying than turning up and finding your house doesn't belong to you anymore yeah, and it's yeah. been scammed. So mm. even those situations, as I said, somewhat frustrates me because we have the answers and the UK one's a perfect one. We literally have the technology being used and available but not applicable to property sales. Mm. What's the UK government thinking? Mm. Why would we not agree, for example, that um, advanced uh, Western economies that we share lots of other you know, things around wouldn't agree that there's some kind of international, again, highly legitimized, authorized businesses being able to do these checks. So, so I just want to roll back to, to this um, notion of, well, what's the ro- problem with uh, getting the client to email me their driver's license and passport or doing a Zoom meeting with their, you know, driver's license and passport. What's wrong with that, Ches? Well, let's start with legitimate people. Well, the first risk is as soon as you start emailing identity documents over, we've seen obviously uh, in recent you know years, particularly in Australia, how vulnerable Australian identity information is and how much identity theft we've had. It's It's been, a you know, an epidemic really in the last couple of years, particularly you holding that data puts you as a business operator at significant risk if you are breached and that information flows out. Particularly in many cases, real estate and conveyances tend to need to collect a lot of um, very in-depth information about their customers. So it's not just a, an ID document, it, it's other information around bank accounts, bank accounts mm. yeah, all these different utility, all this stuff that comes together, all the same sort of stuff that's used to create or provide information to get loan doc, loans or, or other um, access to funds through other businesses, right? So you're a you're a hot hot target, right? You're something yes. with a lot of data. So that's the first two bits, and then the second bit, of course, is when it comes to and this is always the problem with fraud. Ninety nine point nine percent of whoever you're dealing with is going to provide the real, true, correct information to you because they're like most people in Australia, hardworking, good, legitimate people. So they provide you the truthful stuff. The people that are trying to commit the fraud are clearly not going to send real information. They're going to send you ID documents that have been modified to look like real identity documents. Uh, that could be anything from tampering with the details to tampering with the photo and real details. So you're going to get that information and go, well, I've got something emailed. I had a quick Zoom chat with him. Uh, it looked like the ID he held up 
in the in the Zoom chat was pretty fuzzy, couldn't really make it out, and I've got it, and it looks legit. Um, so you're really not proving anything other than that a person who's trying to defraud you can email you and can tamper with a, a photo of an ID document. That's why I'm really against it for yeah there's a many reasons why i'm against emailing particularly of identity documents because i a i think it puts you at risk and, and your clients at risk and b doesn't actually stop the fraud so we i've i know i've referred you guys to uh real estate agents um you, you know i think you're starting to talk to at least one of them now yep. um and uh i think that the online solutions that yours is you know being the the gold standard in my view, but thank you. you know, the, yep, uh, you're welcome. But uh, I think that they are the best option for for real estate agents, considering you know the the small amount of money that that uh, we pay you to to do that, take that risk off our plate, kind of, yep. uh, or mitigate that risk. So one of the things is that when if a real estate agent used an online identity provider such as yourself or um, Checker. Yep. is back-to-source checks of yes. the, the driver's license and passports or, or the passports. There's there's multiple countries that do back-to-source, yeah? Yes, yep. yep. It's uh, certainly a case of different countries do different back-to-source checks. Uh, we're also looking at... So, so just just to clarify, what is, what is the importance of back-to-source? Right, okay. So the, the importance of back-to-source is it, it gives you... Um, and what is the source? So the sources depend on different countries. Um, generally, the sources are three types of documents broadly, but sometimes there, there are more. So the three types of documents broadly are, are birth or citizenship certificates, driver's licenses or nas- and or national IDs, and then passports. Mm-hmm. Many Western like or advanced economies uh, have variations of versions of them. Frustratingly, it it can be a bit of a dog's dinner. As I said, the UK has access to it, but for only limited use cases, the US has them. But for example, it's not every state. It's about 40 out of 50 states give you access. So it becomes quite complex to line up. And then of course, the problem in these ones, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head, if South Africa does or doesn't allow back to source checks, I, I think it's they don't. Uh, but often, obviously, uh, more developing economies, they've got a lot of other you know, priorities and, you know, education and health understandably sits mm. higher and, and often these nice to have function or of government aren't aren't readily available yet. So the thing with back to source as I understand it is if somebody uploads a a fraudulent document, it will there'll be something on it that'll be wrong. The number yes. on it will be wrong or the DOBs will be wrong or the name on it will be wrong. There'll be something on it that'll be wrong. So when you do your back to source check, it'll throw up an error saying, "Sorry, the, that passport that you want, yep, isn't matched on our yeah. system." So the the name matches, the date of birth matches, but the actual passport number doesn't match. Yeah. Well, that's pretty unusual because if you know, Peter's provided me this passport, it says it's current, and now it's saying that it half checks, but this number doesn't check. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. And at that point, you, you, your your office stops and go, and and you, the, everyone starts asking questions. Yeah, and look, there can be legitimate reasons. It could be a damaged passport, and 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 it got misread. It could be, um, you know, uh, what other reasons can it be? There are some strange reasons now. For example, in WA, if you want, you can block your your ID from driver's license from passing a test that was uh, passing this check. This was to prevent people misusing it, but. It, 
I think it backfires because it means that. Yeah, Optus, I think it was caused by Optus. And then was, pe- yeah. people jumped on the bandwagon saying, we don't want this. But then suddenly they couldn't do anything. They, you know, like Absolutely. Their, their driver's license was basically useless as a piece of ID. And unfortunately, because it's a state-based systems flowing into a federal-based bigger system effectively, if you block yours to say, I don't want people checking it, kind of gives us the same result as as, 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 a, um, a, as if it's a scam. It's Or an ID that's previously been blocked from yes. a scam. Yes, yes. So yep. annoying, we can't really tell you. And then you have to say, oh no, I blocked it. I'll unblock it. Try again. So look, <laughs> like many things in life, there's, there's obviously complexities on it. And look, there are some stuff that we're looking at now, for example, passports with chips in it. There's some possibility we might be able to help particularly for foreign passports, get access to those chips to verify that they're legitimate and their uh, designs effectively are non-tamperable designs. So if the passport that you show me says uh, says says it's Chez's passport and then we go do a check, we, that will say, no, no, there's that Chez isn't recorded on this passport. This is, a, this is a fraudulent attempt to get into this chip. So we know straight away that something untoward is occurring. You've stolen my passport and attempt to alter it to make it look like yep. um, you know, someone else. So- that's some things we're looking in because we know that the scammers, unfortunately, are generally coming from offshore. That's what we're we're seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, COVID accelerated a lot of things and a lot of great things like you know, digital the, the accessibility of digital transactions. But of course, like any new technology that assists, someone's always going to figure out how to weaponize it for um, for yeah, you know, evil purposes, I guess. So, I question. Um, so, so your system checks the back to source. But it also has facial biometrics. Yes. Now, I remember you saying something to me about, um, you know, we as agents are not, we're not trained in recognizing human beings. Like, you know, yeah. we, we think we know, oh, that person is Chez and this person is somebody else. Well, actually, we, we actually don't know. No. And my favorite test that was conducted that really, really brought this home to me was actually against. I don't think it was the Australian passport office, but it might've been, but an Australian passport office, sorry, a passport office. And they actually tested real passport, like frontline offices and their pass rate was something like 60%. Mm. So, you know, a third of the time they couldn't tell if a person was legitimate or not. And that's their day job. Yes. So, yes. And that's because we look different, right? And the way that humans look at people and the way that computers look at people are quite different, you know. It would almost be some sort of um, cognitive bias there. It, yes. In, you, you're looking at somebody and you sort of want that match to happen. Yep. Because if if it doesn't happen, there's work for you. So you're sort of looking at, yeah, this is the yeah, way you go. And we are a species that's built on trust. Mm-hmm. You don't end up with millions and millions of people living on top of each other if there's not a high degree of trust, right? Mm. Which has amazing advantages, you know, what we've done as a, as a species, but also means that you're right. We have these biases built in that if someone purports to be that and they appear confident and relaxed about it, our general feeling is, oh, yeah, well, you know, seems right. And as I said, the way we look at things is quite different. And we've all experienced it. Uh, friends cut a hair uh, or, or uh, grown a beard, grown a beard, dyed their hair, lost a significant amount of weight, put a significant amount of weight on. And, you know, we're almost that double take of like, hang on, who's this person? And it mm. takes your brain that moment to go, oh my God, that's Peter. Look how f- he's looking mm. fa- fabulous at the mm. moment. He's, you know, got a new haircut or whatever it is. Mm. Computers don't look at faces in the same way. They don't have that bias. They, like all technologies, they're not perfect, but they look at a very narrow part of your face that doesn't change basically whether you lose or gain weight. It's really around the sort of the eyes and the nose. Um, and it's very much 
mathematical. It's designed about measuring things that don't really change. So, mm-hmm. you know, you'll face very little changes from, you know, 20 to sort of 80 to a computer. Now, to a human, oh, my God, a 20-year-old and 80-year-old mm-hmm. don't look very similar at all. But to a computer, it says, well, if I measure between this point of one eye and this point of the other eye, they, they don't change much in 60 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the other advantages of a biometric quantitative analysis as opposed to a human qualitative analysis, which is, hey, this looks like a guy I know called Peter. Yes. And the flip side is, of course, we've all done the other one. We've walked up someone at a bar. That's probably because we had a couple of drinks and gone, hey, Peter, how are you going? Good to see you. And the person's looking at you going, sorry, I'm James. Do I know you? And you're like, oh, my God, sorry. You look just like a mate of mine. My bad. And, you know, walk away embarrassed. I, uh, yeah, I had, I've had that. Yeah. yeah. Where I've literally been mistaken for another person. Yeah. It's a- the other side of things, uh, the, the house for you guys is, is location of where the identity happens. Yes. So if you've, uh, in, as in this case, uh, supposedly the person was going to the South African, uh, the uh, embassy or the consulate, yep. but their ID was done in, like had they done a, a Scantech ID, they would have been geographically located probably in Nigeria. Uh, or, yeah, almost certainly. And part of this is, um, as I was saying, we're very focused on Australia now and we can do internationally, but for people who have Australian documents. So in this case, we're working towards having it, being able to read you know, different document types and to bring up warnings. We're going to have to caveat this a lot, as I said, because in many cases, we will not be able to do a back-to-source check because of as the reasons we explained earlier. But certainly some of those other things, absolutely, like facial biometric and also combining that with location to straight away, if someone tells you, I've got a South African document. I'm in South Africa. I won't transfer to uh, Vietnam my money, but I can see that they're in Nigeria. You would be straight away saying, Alarm no dice. that have to be going off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something we would like to be able to bring to our clients because we do think there's a lot of value, but we've been very, taking a very, very, I don't want to say cautious, not read, but a, a sensible step-by-step process because what we certainly don't want to do is to give our clients uh, false confidence uh, because that would be even worse than than the other option, I guess. If someone goes, oh, well, Scantec said this and that's what it normally works. We have to be very clear, like we couldn't do a back-to-source check on this document. We're not saying it's not legitimate. But what we could potentially say is we noticed other anomalies that would, would concern us. Yes. So what are those anomalies? Yeah, so so at, least the, at least with this, it, it's, well, Scantec's thrown up some error messages yep. in the workspace. That's your cue to start asking some further questions. A hundred percent. And, you know, and, and it comes back to the, the, that ARNEC notion and, you know, that that's a, a government body, their notion of reasonable steps. And I would suggest that, that real estate agents, they're going to have the same set of standards. I think they're supposed to. I'm not sure whether there's the same. They're not, well. I don't know if there's the same level of uh, information available currently, which I think there should be, right? Yeah. So, so in there, the code of conduct that I, I read at the very start, it, it says reasonable steps. Yep. Now, I, I would be very surprised where long, in fact, I'm just going to say it, that I think that the reasonable steps for a real estate agent and a reasonable steps for a conveyance should be the one and the same thing. I agree on that completely. Because this should never have got to the conveyancer. Yes. You know, if you just rely on one document, one email verification of identity from a supposed consulate, I'm sorry, but I don't think you've done enough. Certainly. I mean, as we saw this case, did that first letter of consulate documents get called to confirm that they had passed? I 
think clearly not. Clearly not. I think is what we can see from the evidence, right? So they got something. And they said, oh, it said South African consulate stamp on it. I mean, I don't know about you. you obviously, do this. I don't. I have no idea what a South South African consulate stamp looks like. I, I know Marcus Liley. You know, he tells a story where he paid somebody. You know, like o- online, he says, "Oh, can you you make me up a, a fake? You know, some consulate stamp." And it you know, turned up in the mail. You know, there yeah. it is, a, a fake stamp. No doubt. And, you know, he, he's, a, he's a good guy, but he just wanted to prove a point that, you know, there's the, these things that are going on. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, I mean, it, <laughs> we don't know what the value of this property was, but this would have been a pretty bloody lucrative scam if they got away with it, right? Like oh, yeah. tens and tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. for what? Making a few fake letters and a, a few fake... Oh, oh, there's a Passport. payday in it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you imagine doing this, as I said, doing it 10, 20, 30, 40 times, you can succeed pretty pretty poorly and still do really well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they work on the numbers. I think we were talking about this off air that yep. you know, we they, they just work on, well, we're just going to throw as many darts at the wall as we can yep. and you know, one of them will stick. And, uh, and I, I would not be at all surprised. I've said this in, in, uh, in some of the, the Facebook groups that I, I suspect that there is a, one of these successful scams sitting in the system waiting to be found, uh, waiting to be revealed. Yes. Like, so, somebody in around about September or October this year, uh, there'll be a, you know, mum and dad sitting around the kitchen table, uh, and, Mabel, have you got the the rates bill for that block we've got in York? And no, I thought you had it. And oh well, can you give give the council a call tomorrow? And uh, they call the council the next day, and they said, "Sorry, you don't own a block in in York. You sold it in February two thousand and twenty-four." And yes. you go, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I I'm just fully expecting that to happen, and. and I think that whatever conveyancing firm and whatever real estate agent touch wood, it's not mine. That happens to. Uh, I I think that they will be. It'll be the last thing they've done in real estate. Yeah, and look, we were talking uh, off air about this as well. I mean, we've obviously really been focused so far on this conversation about you know the real estate and conveyancing aspect of it. The bit that that we were really curious about is, as we said, for these deals to work with a lot less friction Uh it has to be basically a Mm non-occupied building which is not that common obviously in a pretty good rental market and owner occupied so really we're talking mainly about vacant land here and it has to be unencumbered so where do we think the scammers are getting this data from yeah Um, how did they know how did they know Mm. and obviously you and we've got some theories that we may not go into how we think they got away that we don't want to give anyone ideas but I think the bit that is a big question mark is what's the responsibility of the land registry in all of this? Yeah, hundred percent, Chase. Because you know, like the the land registry, that when those first two property frauds came out in in you know, well, it was ten years ago or thereabouts yep. now, and there was a hell of a lot of you know finger wagging, and 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 most of the finger wagging was at the real at, at the conveyances. Yep. And and there was a bit at the at the real estate agents as well, but you know a lot of it was at the conveyances. How did you let this through? And so there was a whole bunch of the things put in place. But since then, nothing's changed. And you look at the the the, the Landgate like recommendations around verification of overseas, you know, clients and all that. They 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 haven't changed. They don't even recognise the the 
the the value or proper place of electronic platforms such as yours. It's, it's yep. like, why? Yes. You know, like, get your shit together, guys. Yeah. And look, we appreciate that, yeah, to a certain extent, governments need to move at a slower pace than technology. But there's a difference between taking your time and 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 having a process to engage it. And just this kind of thing, well, it, it sort of worked for the last 100 years. Why change it? Well, a lot, of, a lot of other things have changed in 100 years. You know, that can't be a mindset because the fraudsters aren't thinking that, are they? They're thinking, well, there's new technology and new ways we can take advantage of this. You, you couldn't commit this fraud. I'm saying you couldn't. This fraud's with attempted fraud we're talking about now, it's very, very hard to commit 20 years ago, right? You, you, you really need to do a lot more paper signings, a lot more physical interactions. Mm. Um, so that's that's been taken away for, for good reason. And it, it's really advanced. It, it's where There's no doubt where the industry is heading is where it had to have. It was inevitably going to end up. But you, you can't just bring part of along for the journey and leave the other bit. Like, well, we'll still use the old way of verifying, which is, hey, if someone can turn up, in person, they're good, and then if they can't turn in person, uh, well, we don't. We're not going to tell you. Just do reasonable steps. Mm. Okay. Do you want to tell me what they are? No. Mm. Off. Thanks. And there's there's other things that the government could be doing, uh, such as um, we, we and we spoke about this earlier about uh, the Office of State Revenue have been uh, collecting the buyer's date of birth since Pexa was born. Yep. Yep. So they're holding that now. We we upload the seller's date of birth into PEXA when we're doing a transaction. Wouldn't it be good make sense for uh, OSR and PEXA to talk and just throw up a mismatch if that if that was not absolutely flag? This seems unusual. You got this date of birth, but now he apparently has a different date of birth five years later. Yeah, uh, maybe you want to go check that. Mm. Um, the other. Bit, as I'm curious, and you know, there's still risks in doing this, but again, going back to Swiss cheese analogy, why can't I associate key information with my my title? So I want my yes mobile phone number. Now, again, people, someone's going to say, but people change their mobile phone numbers. Sure, they do, but not that often. I want to put my email often. People change their emails. Sure, but not that often. If you were to say, I want to associate it with my title, my mobile phone number, and my uh, my uh, email address and mm-hmm. if there's more than one person the the title they want theirs on there as well to flag anything around that now things are still going to get through but what's that going to drop the success rate by nine, 90% 95% yeah at least it's another line of defense it's another line of defense it costs virtually zero so close to zero it's not funny again there probably has to be some way mechanism if you need to update that and that would need to be quite rigorous because you couldn't have a scam where someone just goes and updates the number straight away mm. But surely that's another line of defense that would be very cheap, mm. uh, very easy to implement. Could be done at settlement. Could be done at settlement. Yeah, because yeah. we've collected all this information and when we lodge the, the, the electronic transfer of land, we also lodge the, well, what is it that you guys, that, that, that is the buyer, want, want kept against this title? Yeah. I mean, well, you literally it's, it's do It's almost a, like a, a, a passphrase. Yeah. We do it with bonds tenancy, right? If you- give you your whatever the bond agency I forgot is here you put it in there and they make you put your email and your phone number down and then when at the end of a, uh, a rental you ask for your bond back you have to provide email a, a and phone number mm. To, mm. to pass it so the government's literally done this yeah <laughs> for good reason because no doubt those uh, bonds were getting scammed at one stage mm. yet we can't the same government can't do it for titles mm. I, I think you would again and this is the thing that people forget about fraud it's a numbers game it's only yeah. profitable because it works 
10% of the time. Mm-hmm. If you go block 90% of those transactions, then it only works 1% mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, guess what? The scam's not worth it. They'll go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere else. They'll go to South Australia or they'll go Mm. to Victoria or they'll go to Tennessee. I don't know. They'll go Mm. somewhere else where those levels of integrity aren't in place and they'll find a different place to scam. But, you know, I don't want to sound too parochial, but who cares? That's not us then, right? That's someone Mm. else's problem. Mm. And how do they solve that problem? They copy what we've done. They put those levels of of protection in. So it feels like, and it won't happen because these things never move quickly, but this feels like a solution that could be mandated and legislated within months. Pretty quickly, yeah. And I'm not saying, look, you might say well, it's it's not feasible to, to backdate it. That's fine. That's not ideal because properties only change, what is it, every seven years on average. So it's going to take a long time for a vast chunk of that to come through. But at mm. least in seven years, we'll say, well, we've got a much more secure system. Mm. Maybe you offer someone, maybe, maybe the uh, councils can provide the data they have for all the properties. Mm. It feels like there's solutions that would be cheap and, and pretty quick to do. Cheers. I'm very mindful that we're starting to run out of time. <laughs> we always <laughs> we, seem we, to. <laughs> we're, we're probably going to run out of, uh, out of storage space on, on this machine that's recording this conversation. But, um, you know, I, I think the message here is that what Leanne and Phoebe stopped could just as easily have been, have gone through. Yes. That, that fraud could very easily be a, a fact of, 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 uh, history now. Yes. Uh, and we, no one would be any, any wiser. Uh, the, our point here is to, to Landgate, to REWA, to AIC, WA, um, to OSR, to all the stakeholders in, in this, it, start doing something to improve the protection for property owners. Yeah. I think even the fact if they were to say they were doing something, that would discourage scammers. Mm. It really is a case, and yeah, and I'm the same with what what Leanne did. I think that just shows you as well that it never hurts just to ask that one more question, right? It one could have been question. so easy for her one or more question her team is member. Reasonable steps, yeah. One yep. more question, you know. Anytime you get a, an inkling of of doubt, I think that's that good thing about reasonable steps. Anytime you get that slightest inkling, something doesn't quite pass the sniff test, then you need to add another step to that reasonable steps. So we're going to wrap it up there. On behalf of the industry, Leanne, Phoebe, take a bow. Thank you so much for what you've done here and uh, for, I think you'll become a catalyst for change. Uh, Ches Rafferty, uh, thank you so much for coming on again. Um, uh, for, for those who want to find out more about Scantech, go to scantech.com.au and that's S-C-A-N-T-E-K.com.au. Is that correct? Right that is, yeah, yes. Beautiful. And, uh, yeah, look them up. They're, they're a great service. And I think that uh, if you're wanting to tick the box of reasonable steps, start with Scantech. And uh, I think you've done a lot better than what most people would be doing. Thank you. Until next week, this has been Peter Fletcher for the WA Property Q&A podcast. And that wraps up another episode of the WA Property Q&A. We hope you found our discussion valuable and gained some valuable insights into the world of property buying in Western Australia. Remember, while we strive to provide useful information, it's crucial to consult with the appropriate professionals before making any investment decisions. Don't forget to tune in next week for another exciting episode where we continue to unravel the mysteries of the WA property market. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, feel free to reach out to us. Until then, happy property hunting 
and remember to seek the right advice for your personal circumstances. Thank you for listening. Thank you.